Joining me on the show today is stand-up comedian and comedy writer, Ricky Glow. Now, Ricky joins me all the way from America, and when it comes to comedy, there's not a lot that Ricky hasn't done. Whether it's acting, writing, producing, Ricky has done it all. And that's why I really wanted him on the show. Ricky's got a fascinating story about how he fell in love with comedy, became a stand-up comedian, and improvisation and much much more as well as writing some very successful comedic plays it was an honor to have ricky on the show he was naturally witty funny and it was a great episode one i will remember for a very long time a year later i got to see college kids do this thing that i wrote a year before in a different space with a different interpretation, you know, different choreographer, different costume designer, different actor. It, again, it was surreal. And like, they sold out their run. And I did a Q&A and like, people looked, like I had done stand-up and stuff where there had been some feeling of celebrity, but like, it was so weird to be revered as like, like, oh my God, how did you write this? How did you think of putting these things together? And it's like, because I wanted to do something that I wanted to see. Welcome to the Schofield Stories podcast, unmasking masculinity and mental health. Join me, Callum Schofield as I work to strike the stigma surrounding men suffering from mental health. Every episode, a new inspiring guest will share his story. And this episode is no different. Welcome to the Scope for the Stories. Let's get started. Thank you for being here and welcome to the show, Ricky. Well, thank you so much for having me. Honestly, the pleasure is all mine. So why don't you introduce yourself and tell my listeners a little bit about who Ricky Glore is. Yeah, hi, I'm Ricky Glore. I'm a stand-up comedian, writer, actor, director, producer, pretty much anything you can do in the entertainment field. Uh, my toe has been dipped into that water. Primarily stand-up comedian and writer. I released my first comedy special, dad bod on dry bar comedy it's a free app that you can download that has like a thousand different stand-up comedy specials um i released my first stand-up comedy album this past june called spitting image where you can find that wherever you listen to music itunes uh, spotify if you have it it's if you have sirius xm uh i think there's a few tracks from the album that are on that and you can buy that at circustrapeze.com where you can get a physical CD that has a download code or get just the digital CD. And during quarantine, I've been staying busy. A lot of my stand-up shows got canceled, a uh, majority of them. I started a weekly puppet satire news show called Weekend Pup Date that we just wrapped on our final episode two weeks ago mainly due to the news just kind of being daunting and not very uplifting. And it was a lot of work to produce a, a new half hour of free TV with no budget and not a lot of people watching. So uh, it was something that I felt like I could exercise out of my life to not have some anxiety because I also have a wife and a 14-month-old daughter. So you definitely got your hands full. Yeah. <laughs> So, obviously, the entertainment industry, you know, you said you've dipped your toe in a lot of water. Was that something you always wanted to do? Was it always entertainment, always comedy along those lines? I started off, yeah, I, I've always been, um, I've always been very interested in comedy and entertainment um, from my dad, watching a lot of old movies growing up, falling in love with like, um, Hope and Crosby, uh, Martin and Lewis, you know, uh, watching Three Stooges, not loving it, not loving Slapstick, but then loving like the Monkees TV show and their music, 
loving Saturday Night Live, Phil Hartman, Pee Wee's Playhouse, Ernest, um, just an appreciation for horror movies, movies. I just really like a lot of different creative aspects that go into live performance or movies. And how did that go from something you like to actually something you wanted to do professionally? That happened with, uh, I went to college and I originally was going to be a teacher and I thought I had to have a job, which I was instilled with, with me from my parents was you go to college, you go to university and then you leave with a job. You leave with a profession and a career that will hopefully set you up for the best possible life, you know, secure finances, have some footing on the ground. Two years in, I decided that I wanted to switch my major and do theater and I broke the news to my parents and that started my love of then going, okay, well, what kind of theater do I want to do? I'll act in the school plays, but I also wanted to be on the school improv team because my mind was already set. Now that I'm a theater major, I'm going to do improv. I'm going to graduate college. I'm going to go to Chicago where there's second city and improv Olympic that a lot of people who end up working for Saturday Night Live, that's their trajectory. They go do that and then they end up on SNL unless you go to LA and you do the Groundlings. So now that I'm a theater major in college, I wanna get in shows, but there's also the college improv team that was very coveted and I wanted to get in. And I auditioned, didn't get in. So the next audition wouldn't be for another year and I wanna get my I want to get my creativity outlet flowing and comedy. So I looked at a local comedy club that was hosting a weekly stand-up comedy class. Yeah. And I took that and that really started getting me into the mindset of how to write stand-up, how to do it. Um, my teacher for that class, the best thing he said was, I can't, if you guys are here because you think I'm going to teach you how to be funny, that can't happen. You're either funny or you're not. He's like, I can give you the tools to shape it and hone it and some exercises to hopefully make it better, but I, I cannot make you funny. And that teacher, Jeff Jenna, actually is a professional comedian that is still kind of my mentor now, that before oh. I recorded my comedy special, he was nice enough to go through my set and give me some pointers because he had done a comedy special with Drybar as well. Uh, so... First of all, how did your parents react when you said you changed your major to theater? <laughs> but I thought, so was this it is a bit, or? This is a bit that's actually uh, on a clip that Drybar just released right now. It's part of my stand-up act. I have two older brothers. My oldest brother's John. My middle brother's Eric. And Eric um, is gay and came out when he was going to FSU, Florida State University. And we were down there visiting him. Um, and so the way he did it was we were trying to think of the most Kentucky thing we could do as a family. So we took him to a flea market. And while we were there, he pulled my mom aside and he said, mom, I have something to tell you. I'm gay. Flash forward a few years later when I'm going to break the news to my parents that I'm going to be a theater major. I asked my brother Eric to help me break the news to my parents. So after a regular Sunday dinner, my brother stood up and he said, mom and dad, Ricky has something he wants to tell you. <laughs> and my dad just hung his head and was like, oh, you're not gay too, are you? And my brother was like, nope, but close. <laughs> and that is exactly how it happened. That's, that joke is verbatim. Um, it's not embellished. The thing I don't say in the joke, though, is my dad then was like, oh, that's fine. Like, I'm glad to, you will, because I'm my dad's only son. My two older brothers are half brothers. Yeah. So they're his stepsons. Um, my dad was just happy that, he wouldn't have been unhappy if I, if I were gay. Very accepting family. He would have been sad for me to not have uh, produced grandchildren. Right. Um, and so he was like, oh, yeah, theater manager, fine. Whatever makes you happy. My mom, on the other hand, is standing in the kitchen now and it bursts into tears and through her tears says, you're never going to have a job. 
because again, it was very important to her in her mind that you go to college and you secure a career that will put you on the right path. Like I said, to be comfortable throughout life. So did that make you have any second thoughts or were you still committed to theater? No, because, um, because I, could, I knew I could always go back to college. Like I could always go back a year or so. Like I think it's a year or two years to get a full on teaching degree and certificate. But I also knew that like with a theater degree, you can, you can still teach now to teach full time. And I think after a certain time is allotted, you do have to get the teacher's degree, but I have never been someone that loves a nine to five job. There's, I think there's two ways of thinking. You can either do what you love and not make a ton of money, but it's okay because you do what you love. You do your passion or you can do something you don't love and you make enough money that when you're not there, you're enjoying the riches that come from the job that you really don't like. And so pretty much all of my jobs, I knew I could find a job. Working was not an issue. I could pretty much do whatever. I just knew that that wouldn't be the thing I love as a career. And even while doing it, I would still be then putting aside time to explore being creative, writing a, a play, writing a musical, writing stand-up, performing stand-up. You know, I, I always made the deal with myself that I could go and do a show that's at like midnight and not get to bed until three o'clock in the morning and then have to be at work at eight, knowing that I'd be tired the next day, but never being like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna buck all responsibilities just to be creative. I knew that I had to balance it in a way to actually live. Yeah, so you still had that sort of level head, you could say, that you knew you needed to have some, not normality as such, but you needed to mm -hmm. do the things to keep you going as well until you could progress further in comedy and entertainment. Ex yeah. yeah, I mean, there's, there's a mode of thinking of like, well, you could be like Pete Holmes, uh, a famous comedian, who turned his story into a HBO television show called Crashing, where he went to New York and he slept on, he made friends, other comedians, and he slept on their couches. And he did open mics and he did comedy clubs. And he just was basically a vagabond performing. And they, you know, the, the theory always is that you have to kind of hit rock bottom and you really have to be hungry to be a better comedian maybe because i never had that i won't be as good or as deep or as rich in comedy um as those people had but for me i knew being creative wasn't a hobby whatever that is like before pandemic broke out um i have a a horror movie script i'm a, a big fan of horror movies as well and I have a script that I wrote that I wanted to try to acquire the budget to make. And to do that, I was able to accumulate a lot of really talented people to donate their time and their skills to help me film the opening scene of the movie and then use that to try to acquire the budget. So I did, and we filmed it in two days over a weekend. I had done a show five hours away the night before and the guy who opened for me doing stand-up drove back and I was like well I'll sleep on the way back I barely slept so filming that next day I went in with like two hours of sleep maybe an hour and a half to then film for like six hours but then you know the next that night I went to bed early you know, luckily, my wife having a partner who's very understanding and supportive because she knows I will balance things out. It won't be a, oh, I just quit and didn't go to work today because I went and made $30 doing a stand-up show or something. Yeah. Well, that's what if I was that makes sense. Yeah. going to ask you, well, how is it ha having to balance the sensible work like you could say what you want to do with entertainment and also you know a wife and a child now as well is that ever a challenge at times or 
it it is a little bit the pandemic the pandemic has definitely made it easier because our daughter turned one within this past year and so i had put a hold on doing a lot of touring shows um the month leading up to her birth and then like the month leading after and then i kind of hit the ground running and recorded my special after she was born and I mean, my wife and my child are a wealth of material, so yeah. I, I have to have them uh, besides loving them. But it helps that my wife also was in the creative arts. She does a lot of teaching now, which is usually uh, she teaches dramatic arts for the most yeah. part. So she has the knowledge and an understanding of the kind of the gypsy lifestyle, even though we don't we're like middle lower class so like we own a house and you know we have cars but like we don't do too many extravagant things like again pandemic can't really do anything um but the balance is good because i think the balance is good is because our communication is good yeah. if ever there's a point of contention or if there's something that is not jiving for one of us we are usually not ones to hold it back and let it like ruminate we are usually very vocal with like it, when we fight for example we will fight talk it out and it might last two and a half hours but we will squash and figure out the fight from both angles from each other within that one sitting it's never like we'll have a fight and then like a week later it's like, oh, you know that thing I was pissed about last week? This thing's back. Like we squash it. We talk it out and we hear each other out and we try to figure out what the solution is to grow from in the moment. Yeah, and that's, well, you know, take away the comedy to one side. I think that's great advice for anyone in a relationship, really. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that definitely helps. So let's um, start again. Sorry, let's go back to college and stuff yep. like that. I'm not going back to college. <laughs> How did you sort of move forward? You talked about obviously your mentor. You started doing the comedy uh, lessons. Yeah. What happened next, really, when you've got either towards the end or leaving college, for example? Towards the end of college, one of the best things I learned, so I, I started getting cast in plays, a lot of different things, did Shakespeare, did Of Mice and Men. Um, really, the main, those are called the main stage shows, the ones that the college produces. I did eventually get on the improv team, so I was on the track that I felt like I wanted to be. I was doing the straight theater that I liked. I was doing improv. Um, I was doing stand-up. I was getting booked regularly at a local club. I was kind of their house MC. I was getting to work with at the comedy club. If anyone who had ever worked with SNL or touched it in some way came through, I always threw my hat into the ring of wanting to be the person who worked with them. So I was very fortunate to get a lot of those experiences. And the best thing I learned at college that I ended up using, and it helped me with the business side of things in my mind, What's that? My school is very good about saying that if you felt like as an actor or as a creative, as a writer, as a costume designer, whatever in the arts, if you weren't getting the opportunities that you thought you deserved, you should make them. And you should team up with people to make your ideas or your opportunities become a reality. And that's something that really stuck with me and I liked because I think if you ask my wife if I say I'm going to do something it's going to happen or I'm going to work really hard to make an idea come to life so within college I wrote and directed a sketch comedy show with some other uh, people that I thought were talented and funny and could be in it and then for my senior project because I was a creative writing minor um, as well I was able to use this project to cover some theater requirements and my minor requirements. I wrote and directed a play about a fictional telling of Charlie Chaplin being questioned by the house 
uh, Un-American Activities Committee. What it would have been like, because he said historically that um, if he'd have been called before the House on American Activities, he would have went as the tramp and it would have remained silent. Um, and I was a big Chaplin fan. And I, this is going to sound incredibly dumb. Um, I do not like reading books. I, I fall asleep. I like listening to audiobook. I like watching a movie. Uh, books, I don't know why comics for the most part too i just don't like reading is is dumb as that sounds um but if i am interested in something chaplin i probably have 10 different books one of which is the biography he wrote which they say is the biggest piece of fiction out of all the books about chaplin (laughs) is that he lied about himself and like there's so many contradictions in his own book but I read so much work on Chaplin and watched everything that existed of him on celluloid. Um, And then so I I wrote and directed this play and I cast it, it was a two person play. Martin Dyes, who was uh, on the House on American Activities Committee, a fictional version of him. And then an actor who did a really great job as Chaplin. And I put it on um, in our student theater at the college so like they gave me a little bit of a budget and and promoted it and it was awesome like we had i think it was five performances they were all sold out small small amount of seating uh, and it just gave me that spark of you can make anything happen if you if you don't isolate yourself, if you talk to other people and you get them excited and you give, this kind of goes with the horror movie scene that I filmed too. I made connections with people who were very good at what they do. Like I'm not a cinematographer. I don't have the proper equipment. So through channels of saying, Hey, I've got this idea. I've got, so even before that I had this idea and this script and I reached out to these Uh, this husband and wife artist couple who I'm like, I really want to make this opening scene, but I think to convey the seriousness and the professionalism of it, I think it needs to be storyboarded. And so I sent them the writing, the script and they read it and they're like, Oh yeah, we think this is great. We're going to do it. No charge. So then I got these professional looking storyboards and then I used that to then get a cinematographer who had a, um, I don't know if, if you know what it is, it's called a red camera. It's what they use for a lot of professional things. Um, Very expensive camera. He had two of those. So I sent him the storyboard. I'm like, look, I'm looking to do this at this time. I'm going to reach out and get a special effects person. But here's the catch. There's no money involved. You're going to be donating your time and your skills. And it's a very hard thing to hear. And I myself as a stand-up and a performer I try not to do too many things for free because you can get taken advantage of that way. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. And if it's free, sometimes a lot of the projects aren't good. And I'm not saying this project was amazing, but the storyboards and my enthusiasm and professionalism convinced him that this was something that was worth taking time on. Granted he got, you know, he got to work on something to add to his portfolio so there are benefits throughout, but like we accumulated, I think it was eight actors, um, two special effects people, uh, multiple special effects appliances. We ended up, the final shot of this opening scene is a crane shot that the guy, um, Chance, who was my cinematographer, knew someone who had a professional crane to do the crane shot for the camera pitched the thing to him that guy was like yeah okay i'll br- i'll drive my truck that has this giant arm that we have to put together in the middle of these woods the woods that we got were from a friend a friend of my brother's friend we needed so much acreage that when you did a 360 you couldn't see anything except for woods so that's a lot of woods this husband and wife couple were like this sounds cool. And it sounds like a great opportunity. We would love to offer our land for free and you can use our house for the actors 
to take a shower after they get bloody in the scene and like it was just amazing and like i feel like a lot of the the tools i learned for that and then i wrote and directed and produced multiple uh storefront musicals in chicago when i lived there for seven years that was right after college and i feel which paid very little to almost nothing for people's hard work and dedication i feel like i learned that all in college and so it's quite fun to me how everything is still linked you know all your creative stuff you do or link back to college and what i really like is how you're talking about people doing things for free and working together, like, you know, everyone knows someone, like, sort of getting that mm-hmm. community feel, if anything, of all helping each other out. It's, it's what the help you help yourself kind of scenario. Yeah, it's when we were doing shows in Chicago, that because everything that uh, I produced and directed, I wrote. And I was, I'm a comedian. And so a lot of the things had a comedic slant. And I would cast the show with people who I thought would do the best and that I thought connected to the material and expressed the comedy side of it, as well as being a good actor in it. But during rehearsals as a director, I am always open to suggestions to make the piece better. So like from the ensemble of the people working in it to the people who are maybe doing the music or the lighting. My one rule is like, don't disrupt don't be uber disruptive during the process like either pull me aside or when we have a downtime like make a note of it and bring it up because that's the thing is with actors a lot they want to be impulsive and they want to talk and so like if you gave them free range they'll just talk the whole time and railroad whatever but like i always found the projects ended up being better because of the sense like you said a community that even though i wrote it the piece would evolve to be a much better thing through osmosis and with sometimes their input or ideas, it then would give me an idea of like, Oh, that's what this should be. Clearly you guys are picking up on something that either I subconsciously had in the back of my mind, or we're just discovering now, like let's change it to this. And it would always in my, in my mind be better. And the community of people working on it, would feel more connected to it and proud of it because there was a sense of ownership of like, yeah, we put this together. We all built this house. Yeah, I can imagine that's what well, in my head, st- stand-up comedy is you as a solo. So how is that different to what you do with your writing and stuff? As, as in it's hard. Comedy? I took a big break from stand-up when I moved to Chicago because, again, I moved up there to do um, improv and sketch comedy, which I did. And there's a lot of improv in Chicago. There's a lot of bad improv. Improv is kind of like uh, graduate school in America where you might have been a theater major and have done four years of college, but you didn't do a lot or you weren't that great. And then improv out when you're graduated college and like in Chicago, it's a lot, it's people holding on to this dream of thinking they still should be a performer in some way. But what, so it means is the level of talent is very skewed and then dedication is not necessarily the forefront of a lot of improvisers because there's so many improvisers. I had a team where I think there were eight of us and we could do a show any night of the week. Cause all you need is yourself and one other person. You could also do improv by yourself. But so we would book a show and it would be like, okay, who can make it this Friday? Well, uh, I can't make it for whatever excuse. And then, so five people would show up and it's like, okay, this isn't exactly our team, but we can still do a show. And then you get there and only three people showed up from your team to do a show. Improvisers are super flaky, but they love that format because you don't have to prepare at all. It's good if you exercise and you do rehearsals working with each other to be comfortable with each other. But especially in long form, like in college, we did a lot of short form, which is like, whose line is it anyway? 
improv games. Long form is where you get a suggestion and you build a scene. And there may be an outline like the Herald where there's a structure to it where you do like three scenes based off an idea. You do a game, then you do three. Like you can look all that up, anyone listening who might be interested. Um, But there's no structure as far as like dedication of time really. And so I did that for a little bit. And then our improv team did, uh, because the reason why I stopped doing stand-up as much in Chicago was I like playing with others. Like yeah. stand-up is lonely. You go to shows by yourself a lot. You, you're the only one up there. You, you play off the audience's energy. But then again, like you can't hand over, you can't make it a complete open door policy in front of an audience because then they'll railroad the show depending on how many drinks they've had or how many people in the audience think they're the funniest person from their office and want to display that at the show. So I genuinely, I love working with a team of people. (coughs) Excuse me. But so, and then in Chicago, after I did improv for a while, our team decided we wanted to do, we wanted to put a little bit more dedication into it. And we wrote a sketch show, like an hour and a half, kind of like um, a variety Saturday Night Live kind of thing. An hour and a half of a bunch of different sketches. Some of them connected, some of them didn't. Some of them musical, some of them not. And we did it, and it was awesome. Like, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. I felt like everybody artistically got expressed through the show. Thought it was really funny. It was really focused. And then, which is funny because I am also someone that has ADHD, but I do like structure. Um, And then after that show, everyone was like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of done being on this team. We Let's just end. And we ended amicably. Um, And then after that, I was like, oh, I want to get back to theater. I want to write a play where you write it. So that's a process. And then you try to find a theater, you try to find people who are interested in it and then you build it and you build the cast and then the set, like I got really excited about how long something would take to build. And then knowing that the finished product, I, yeah, I think it's the best comparison is to building a house, right? Like you have an idea of, I want to build a house. Then you draw the blueprints. That's the script. And then you start getting contractors in of like, okay, well, where's the land? Where's the theater you're going to put this house up at? And that just got really attractive. And so I started doing that. I found a theater that I loved where I could have those opportunities. And then for the next five years, I every show that I did, I wanted there to be a component that was bigger in scope than the last show. So I would grow in some way. And so then the end of our time in Chicago, I met my wife there. Um, Before we moved, I wrote, produced, and was going to direct, but ended up not being able to, um, Smokey and the Bandit, the musical. So it was a stage version of the movie, Smokey and the Bandit. And... I had done musicals where we had had one performer on a keyboard where we had had canned music that was pre-recorded that the actors sang to. And for this one, I was like, I want to have a full live band. And so I had a five piece tight country band of someone with a pedal guitar, keyboard, actual drummer. And it was so fulfilling, like regardless I don't think you can ever truly fail. I think if you try, you never fail because you learn something from the experience that you're going to take with you to the next thing that you do. And I can imagine it must feel pretty incredible to look back and see the progression. You'll see the development from show to show, from set to set, and just be able to reflect on that really. Yeah. And the, the second show that we did was called um, A Nightmare on Backstreet, a boy band musical parody, which combined a couple things that I love. 
it was the story of a nightmare in Elm Street set to the music of Backstreet Boys. That sounds incredible. Yeah, it, it was a parody, and I was like, this is going to be real dumb, but it also, people might love it, because we're going to do it in Halloween, and even if you don't like Freddy Krueger, you might like boy bands. And, like, we kind of hit a sweet spot there, because it was, it was 2014 when we first did it, and that age group of people who grew up with Backstreet Boys were now just like in their mid thirties. So they were looking for a date night and there was a lot of nostalgia there. Um, Elm street was celebrating it. So let's see, it came out in 84. So what, what would that have been? That have been their 30th anniversary. Yeah. Ten, yeah. Yeah. 30th. So they're celebrating their 30th anniversary. It was October. So it was right around Halloween time. And it just ended up being such a great experience. We sold out our entire run. And then uh, a couple months later, I got an email from uh, a student theater group in Millican, uh, in Decatur, Illinois. And they were like, we want to do a Nightmare on Backstreet next year as one of our musicals in our, in our lineup of shows. And they're like, what, what would it take to get it? And I was like, well, I don't own the rights to Backstreet Boys music, so I can't, I can't ask for money. Um, but I was like, but what I can't ask for is that you uh, find a way to bring me there. You pay for um, travel and lodging so I can come to one performance, at least one performance. And I was like, and I'll do a Q&A after the performance if, if there's one or need for that. And they were like, oh, my God, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that. So then a year later, I got to see college kids do this thing that I wrote a year before in a different space with a different interpretation, you know, different choreographer, different costume designer, different actor. It, again, it was surreal. And like they sold out their run and I did a Q&A and like people looked like I had done stand-up and stuff where there had been some feeling of celebrity, but like it was so weird to be revered as like, like, oh my God, how did you write this? How did you think of putting these things together? And it's like, because I wanted to do something that I wanted to see. Like as being someone who likes comedy or likes musicals and shows, I was like, yeah, I'd go see that. That sounds funny. And then the show that came together ended up being what I thought was funny, what the cast thought was funny and good. Um, and then after Milliken, because they had taken some liberties, not with like lines or anything, but with like some intentions in the show that sparked, I was like, oh, if this is ever done again, I'm going to incorporate those ideas because I really like that. And so then another theater, a theater in Kentucky, an outdoor amphitheater, asked if they could do it for their next Halloween. And I was like, yeah, only requirements. You bring me down to see one of the shows and I'll yeah. do a Q&A. And they did. And it was at an outdoor amphitheater that held like 600 people. And it was crazy. And then again, their interpretations. Uh, and then it was done one more time in Chicago. Someone that I knew was like, we would like to do it. And so I was like, go right ahead. Like, I can't wait. So that show was done four times. And it's just so cool to watch something, like you said, just evolve. Um, that must be, I'm guessing, one of your highlights of your career. Yeah, because I, I, I love... Uh, Elm Street is my favorite horror movie anyway. And getting like a chance to kind of play in the sandbox of that franchise, even though it was a parody... Uh, is pretty cool. Yeah, I can imagine it was. And just a quick question popping into my head about the improv comedy. Is it as hard as it looks? Like, when I see people do improv comedy, I thought, how can anyone do that? How can anyone be that switched on, on the ball? Are you talking, are you more familiar with short form, like improv games like Who's Line, or more long form of people building scenes based off of, like, one suggestion? Yeah, the building scenes is what, I've seen Buildings, more of. Yeah, uh, because the games, 
short form ends up becoming a gimmick. Like, not that those people aren't good. Like, Ryan Stiles, Colin Mockery, and Wayne Brady, and, like, Greg Proops, they're very good. But that becomes a – you start learning tricks. If you do it enough, yeah. um, there are tricks in short form. That's the same thing for long form. People who do long form have usually spent a lot of time with one another, and so they know how to get real with each other, and they know where the other person's brain might be going, which that's the, – the first rule of improv is supposed to be that you never deny. Always say yes. So like if you're in a scene and someone's like, hey, Ricky, look at this fish that I just bought. Terrible improv would be, be me going, no, that's not a fish. That's a bear cub. And it's like, uh, oh, okay. Like, well, that, you didn't really progress the scene, and that's weird. And clearly you have an agenda that deals with a bear cub. Um, or if you just don't listen and they're like, hey, Ricky, come and look at this fish that I just got. I'm like, yeah, that fish is great. But look over there. I think that guy just got robbed. That's not necessarily a complete no-no. Because then maybe if you are working together, now you have a weird scene about a guy holding a fish while they watch a guy get mugged. Yeah, And maybe true. there's something there. But as, as long as there's truth in it. And that's, I think there's another book called Truth in Comedy. Where the scene probably shouldn't be about the guy getting mugged or the other guy holding a fish. It should be about what the relationship is between these two people. Like, what are the ideas of those two things of a guy brings something and the other guy doesn't care or isn't appreciative. Uh, The other guy being a voyeur, but clearly isn't calling for help or doing anything to help the stop the robbery. So what is it about those relationships and those people that then makes that scene interesting? Um, I think it's very hard. I, I don't particularly do great in improv. That's another reason why it was kind of easy to leave. I like sketch. I like using improv. Um, so Second City, they will do improv sets. But their main focus is to doing a sketch show. And so they use improv to get the ideas for sketches that they'll later write and rehearse and perform. And how Improv Olympic was born was uh, Del Close, who was a cast member at Second City in the early 60s. Uh, Bernie Sollins, who ran Second City, was like, okay, we use improv for rehearsals, but we're never going to do that in front of an audience. And Del Close was like, well, why not? He's like, I think we could just do improv and people would love it. And Bernie Sollins was like, no, I'm not going to pay someone to watch rehearsals. Like, that's just lazy. And so Del Close was like, all right, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to start basically what we now know as long-form improv is just an art form on its own. Um, I was always told when I did long-form improv that it looked like I was thinking too much in a scene and that I was trying to, like, go to the next page and almost like playing chess. It looked like I was trying to figure out where the logical steps were instead of just being, you know, just ex- like a coexisting with my castmates in the world that was being presented. Um, and yeah, there's probably truth to that. I don't know if I would be a better improviser now because I'm more seasoned and more comfortable with myself, but uh, I enjoy it. I would do it again, but it is definitely not the art form that I would seek out. Whereas stand-up, because of the financial benefits of it, and because I love doing theater because it takes a lot of time, and I want to do more film, but the catch-22 to that is you do need more people, and you do want it to look and be the best that it can be, that sometimes those opportunities aren't afforded to you. You can't get a bunch of people on board to make this thing happen, or you do need some sort of capita and budget to make it happen. With stand-up, I like it even though you're by yourself. I'm the writer, producer, and director. If I, again, barring no pandemic, if I want to go and do a show and express my ideas in comedy, 
and get paid, I can do it. The only people that I have to check in with is my wife and my child, which my child cannot speak English yet. So her opinion doesn't matter a ton, but, uh, but that's it. So stand-up is great because I could think of a joke and this has happened before. I could have a show tonight and think of a joke right now that I could tell in my show tonight. And like, what other art form can you do that? And so that's just incredibly freeing. And you can write while you're on stage too. I could say that new joke tonight. And that's where a little bit of the community idea aspect does come into play because you do have that balance with the audience where I could introduce that idea or that thought or that joke. And then that thing could grow. A lot of times it doesn't. A lot of times things need more work. But based on the audience's reaction, it could go in a hundred different ways that I never would have thought of. And hopefully I've recorded with either my phone, the audio or something in some way to then listen back to and write down later and go, oh, this is good. This is the joke. Next time I go on stage, I'm going to try this as the chunk. So with all that in mind, you know, all your creative industries, what's next for you? you know, as we come towards the end, what is next for Ricky Glow? <laughs> what is next for Ricky Glow? Um, I, because of the pandemic, it took a while. I had to get the footage. I originally was going to co-edit that opening horror scene that we're going to use to shop around and try to get a budget. But now things are in a little bit of limbo. I got the footage and I made a work print cut that I edited myself that has now been sent off to a composer and a Foley artist to write a score for it, to, to put music and put sound effects to it. Again, someone I knew that I worked with in Chicago who loves the idea of this and wants to do it, donating his time and his skills. So once he puts that together, uh, I'm going to get with the cinematographer we're going to color correct the scene to make it look the best that it can and then we're going to try to based off connections we might have get it in front of people to try to get a budget that we think is manageable and enough to make the full script come to life but who i mean is anybody filming anything right now who no one knows pandemic creates so many uncertainties that it's just hard i think the hardest thing in the pandemic besides the the deaths and the the managing of it being proper by government in certain aspects of people who should maybe be doing things better i know in our end in america um it's a little lax a little lackluster besides that i think the hardest thing of the pandemic is that you can't plan like i can like different venues that my shows got canceled at this year they're like well we'll we'll work something out where we'll put on the schedule for 2021 and i'm like yeah great that's wishful thinking that we're gonna be at a place that we can do that in 2021 so as of right now, I have had, uh, I had one live show a couple weeks ago that was done very safely, social distance and outside. I have three drive-in shows coming up at drive-in movie theaters, which will be weird yeah, because pe- people are just honking their horns if they think something's funny. Um, but it's the sa- that is ultimately like the safest way to do a show. People are in their own pods and their own cars. Um, I'm going to do those. I have those in September and I think we're working on seeing if we can get a few more drive-in shows during the season while they're still open. Um, and besides that, I'm just writing, uh, writing jokes, writing scripts, and then just enjoying my family. And that's a great thing to do as well. You know, make sure you can still, enjoying yourself, enjoying your family, and yeah. And on that note, Ricky, thank you for coming on the show. You know, I really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. Thank you. you know, improv comedy and all that. It's, I've seen it, but I've never looked into it. So I found that really interesting. So, yeah, 
thank you for coming on really oh thank you there are um like i said truth and comedy which is written by del close and sharna halpern um who both started improv olympic if anyone's interested in improv read that book it's a little even though i said i don't read it's a very thin little book and it is the nerdiest they will talk about the forms like one of them i mentioned that is the center stone of improv called the herald um yeah and there's a few different documentaries on improv and sketch comedy that are are really good to check out too one is i think the 25th anniversary of io is a really good one but yeah just google some stuff yeah comedy is fascinating i really is i thought you were sharing your experience stories with it thank you so much Thank you for listening to this episode of the Schofield Stories podcast. Without you, my incredible listeners, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. So I hope you know how much your support means to me. We're on a mission to strike the stigma and unmask masculinity and mental health. And just by tuning in and sharing this podcast, you are playing a key part. Schofield Stories, as always, is proud to support Stop Holding Back, a personal development charity for people who stepped up, a charity and a cause very close to my heart. Finally, if you want more, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and the official Schofield Stories website, theschofieldstories.com. That's all from me today. I hope you really enjoyed this episode, and I can't wait to speak to you again soon. I've been Calm Schofield. You've been listening to the Schofield Stories. Bye for now.